Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's episode of the Platinum Sombrero podcast is brought to you by the Emotional Support Bra, presented by the psychological wing of Victoria's Secret. If you've got demons, or if you've got double demons, then the emotional support bra is definitely for you. It's like a warm hug for your insides, but also for your outsides. Our product allows you to get deep in your feelings while providing positive reinforcement and emotional reaffirmation. And, unlike traditional bras, it lends unwavering support to the intangible hurdles you face on a daily basis. We guarantee that our product won't try and fix anything, it'll just listen. We've got your back... We've got your front, and we can't wait to prop you up, because your cans can. Halfway between lingerie and therapy, that's the emotional support bra. Patent pending. Fifty-one thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch, here it is. One. Fly ball, deep left center, Grissom on the run! Yes! 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 Hey, the Braves yes! have given your championship! A 25 lighters on my dresser, yes sir. You know I got to get paid. High five ball! Back to right center! And the Braves have landed! A 25 lighters on my dresser, yes sir. You know I got to get paid. Swing and drive! Now get ready, this is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Platinum Sombrero, brought to you by Armchair Media and our friends at MyBookie. MyBookie.ag is the number one place to go for any and all betting needs. You guys know the drill by now, but I'm going to say it anyway, because MyBookie.ag is the perfect place to go for any and all NFL betting. There's a game tonight, we're recording on Thursday, you got NFL football tonight, you got college football tomorrow, all day Saturday, you got the playoffs in baseball about to heat up and if you want to play some money on the Braves to win a World Series mybookie.ag is the place to go and if you haven't signed up yet sign up with our promo code CHAIR C-H-A-I-R that is how you get the goods you get 1000 up to $1,000 worth of 100% deposit match so you put in 100 bucks, they'll put in 100 bucks. You put in 500, they'll put in 500. You put in 1001, they'll put in 1000 because they're not crazy on your initial deposit. So if you've been waiting to sign up for an online gambling account, now is the time using our promo code chair. Mybookie.ag has all the most updated lines. If you want to bet that Acuña hits 4040 and he, he hits it within two weeks. I'm sure you can find a line for that. They've got the most updated lines, all the best scoring. They don't do anything insane. You're not going to go on there and see some crazy line, look at it again, and they're not going to want to pay you. Their customer service is second to none. If you've got a question, they can help you out. MyBookie.ag, promo code CHAIR, play, win, and have a great time. 
All right, Doc, you know who else has had a good time lately? Who's that? The Atlanta Braves. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but since May 24th, the Braves have the best have the best record in all of baseball. May 24th, that seems like a really arbitrary day. Does it? Not I don't I don't I don't know about that. Um <laughs> But the Braves have done it in a plethora of ways. And when I was on 680 yesterday, we were talking about this team. And they asked me why this team feels different from like teams in, or earlier teams. And it's hard for me being 28. Um, I don't remember much about 95 through 95 and 96. Like the first real team. And I remember winning the World Series, but, you know, not like remember it in detail because I was four years old um, but really like 1998 was was the first time where I really started like I can really remember players and, and how they were doing as a team not just wins and losses or playoffs but this team just seems different and when I was when we were talking about it I think the the big thing for me on this team is that they keep winning in a variety of different ways. Like, there's nothing on this team you can point to. And this is why I think that they're a better team this year than they were during any of those playoff runs in the 90s because there's not one unit that's doing everything for the Braves. They're winning games 9-1. to They're winning games one nothing. They're closing out games at the end. They're coming back from behind. This offense is one of the best offenses we've ever seen from a Braves team. This pitching staff is not the best that we've seen, obviously, since we had three Hall of Famers at the same time. But the starting rotation has been really, really good for what feels like months in a row now. They've really settled in, and they give you chances to win nine times out of ten. The bullpen has kind of figured itself out. This team has a lot going for it. They can win anywhere that the game takes place they can beat you offensively they can beat you defensively they can beat you pitching there doesn't seem to be a big glaring weakness like we're not super enthused about the bullpen like we still see names and we're like ah, i don't know if i trust it uh, it's just kind of okay it's just kind of average but looking at the rest of the league i feel better about our bullpen in the playoffs than i'd feel about half the other squads minnesota still kind of scares me because their bullpen is just ridiculously good but I wouldn't call the bullpen a weakness anymore, relatively speaking. They're the weakness of this team, but I wouldn't consider them like a a major league weakness. Like you're looking and saying, oh, this is one of the worst bullpens in baseball. I don't see a real weakness on this squad. And it's crazy what what a difference a couple of months makes because when you look at where we were coming into the season, there were questions about Donaldson and, and everybody was clamoring about how he was injured and you know maybe he's not supposed to be the guy over there and there were obviously huge questions about the bullpen uh, th- those were warranted but th- but they got handled in in relatively short order the starting rotation has been revamped a number of times but you know big credit to the front office for for looking at the areas in season and saying okay th- this is not going to work here we have to do something and making making the right moves to where you're right i mean the the defense and the speed were the were the two areas where you could really tell that that they were well equipped to deal with whatever came their way during the season the offense was really carrying the team for a little while and then the offense got quiet for a little bit after the all-star break but that's when the starting pitching started to look a lot better now that Keuchel's hit his stride Fulty's back and is just I mean you know my thoughts on Mike Fultonavich so it just warms my heart to see him uh, performing really well Max Freed is a freak Mike Soroka is still a freak Julio is, is um is going to continue to outpitch his FIP for the rest of his life. I mean, so the starting rotation is solid. Martin, Green, and Melanson have been just humongous additions out there in the bullpen. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really well-rounded team. 
And in the same way we talk about five tool guys, how like even if if one area is slumping, you can still get value out of the other tools. It's the same thing with a team like this. Like even even when the offense is down, the starting pitching swoops in and they pick them up. Or if the if the offense is gonna go and hang thirteen on on somebody one night, then it's a little more forgivable if the starting pitching backs up for a day or two because you get a couple of those offensive pieces going at the same time. This team, I mean, we've seen it all all year long. It is just dangerous. And this recent stretch. Acuna hasn't really been hitting all that well. He seems like he's coming out of it a little bit, but this team has been working without Ronald Acuna. Some of the, the, the biggest stretches of winning all season have come with Rafael Ortega logging meaningful innings in the outfield, and uh, Danny Hechevarria stepped in for a little bit while Dansby was out. I mean, Nothing this season has gone the the way that we really thought it was going to. And that's almost like a blessing because here we are. The magic number is eight with two weeks left to go in the season. I mean, it's conceivable that that we could wind up locking up the division within the next week. So this is a really good place to be. And you kind of point to that, the, the magic number being eight, and you point to it would take the biggest collapse in Braves history for this to, to fall apart, and it's not going to happen. This Braves team is not the team that's kind of built to, to crumble that way because they do have so many people that can pick up the pieces or so many different types of the ball club that can pick up the pieces. But really, to, f- to put the final nail in the coffin against Washington, the only thing that could have been better is if Washington was in a real chase with Atlanta for the division and you stamped them out that way, kind of like we did with the Phillies last year. Like to to go to Washington and basically clinch everything would be amazing to to steal or not really steal just put our stamp mark march or stamp our ticket to the playoffs in Washington. I hope it happens so badly. It it, it would it would just be picture perfect. And and it is entirely possible. The the way that we're looking now, there's four games between now and the last game of that Washington series that's going to take place this Sunday. Magic number is eight. So if the Braves win four in a row, the the Nats um, lose tonight against the Twins and then uh, Braves sweep the series this weekend, it will happen. But I almost think it would be a little sweeter to have it happen against Philadelphia just because of the preseason expectations. Yeah, the the Nationals are closer, and they've been – the, the more logical threat for a while now. But Philadelphia, with all the talk and being on the cover of Sports Illustrated and Team Stupid Money and, and all all of those talking points, you know, I, th- I think that the media made us hate Philadelphia more than we actually hated Philadelphia just because of how much smoke they were they were blowing. And, and there's, don't get me wrong, dude, there are some really, really good pieces on this Philadelphia team. But it got so inflated and it was so obnoxious. And after the first series of the year, it was being crammed down our throats. And everybody was, it just, it was going to be so, it's slightly more logical to to see them uh, winning it at home against Philadelphia, which would be a nice bit of symmetry for what happened last year. So, but you know what? At this point, I don't care who it happens against. We're going to wind up playing the Royals soon. They're not even a division rival. Like, you know what? If we if we clinch against the Royals, that's fine too. But you're right. It's even the most monumental of collapses. The magic number, it's not even about us anymore. It's because you have to have everybody else has to keep from losing. And we're not going to go over the rest of the season. We've already won more games than, than we won all of 2018. This team is ridiculous. I think the goal is set on 100 now. I think the, that there's a legit shot 
that this team could actually wind up catching the Dodgers. Whether or not they, they wind up getting home field advantage, I don't know. But it's not out of the question. And imagine going back to March and telling yourself that. Like, what what does March Dillon think about the fact that the Braves are, are actually within striking distance of home field advantage throughout the playoffs? And it, it really does seem crazy. I mean, there was always a shot that these Braves could catch fire, but if you told me in March that the Braves are going to be in this position, I would have just assumed that everything worked perfectly this year, that nobody struggled, everybody played above their heads, everybody stayed healthy all year, but it hasn't. This has been a series of, of this has been a year of patching things over pretty much all year. The Braves last year were a lot healthier of a team than they are this year. We've already dealt with injuries to Marquegas, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, we've dealt with just huge ineffectiveness of like five pitchers that we were planning on counting on early in the year. Uh, we have one member of the bullpen who was around during that first series. The offense has been hit or miss. Ronald Acuna has been great, but there's been moments where he's disappeared. Albies has been great. But there, there's there's just big patchwork that we've had to do. Rafael Ortega, you mentioned getting time. Adam Duvall being up and down. Austin Riley went like ice cold caveman frozen in a block of ice for like three months Camargo hasn't been good this year we've been patching things over and it hasn't stopped this Braves team so if you had told me that the Braves would be missing as much time as they are now from key players that guys like Ender would underperform that Camargo would underperform that Sean Newcomb would be in the bullpen and that Tuki Toussaint Kyle Wright Bryce Wilson would all be basically carrying negative value as professionals I would have thought that the Braves were in fourth place in the division. No doubt. And and there there was obviously reason to be skeptical about about this team coming into it. You know, I had a conversation earlier this week and somebody was was talking about, you know, the the people who were were very calm during during this entire process and you know, they didn't freak out and overreact. They should be, you know, they should be able to gloat about that. Well, I mean, I I guess, but I mean, I'm Dude, you know me. I am mega optimistic when it comes to this team, and it's like even if things aren't okay, then it's still okay. But I mean, there was reason to be worried about some stuff, and and all of the the success from this team is based on the fact that these tiny little micro tweaks. Back in April, when Anthopoulos went out and traded for Jerry Blevins, that seemed significant at the time. You know what I mean? Because the bullpen was in in need of a shot in the arm. The Anthony Swarzak deal, not just because it brought in Swarzak, who had sucked in Seattle, but it got it got Vizcaino out, it got Biddle out, and it just more than anything, I should think it showed a willingness to not be okay with with the status quo. And all all the injuries and the underperformance, yeah, I mean, this is a recipe for a fourth place team. But here we are. 35 games over 500 tracking towards 100. I mean, this is there's something special in the water here. And I I am almost to the point now where if I turn the game on and we're not winning, I'm like, "Well, what is this? What what's going on here?" And it's kind of taking on this element of like, are we too big to sink? Are we getting to the point where it's like we can't lose. I'm getting overconfident in in the fact in this team's ability to just overcome everything. Like I was nervous before because I thought we weren't good, and now I'm nervous because I think we are good. We're like really, really good. I think that's just the Atlanta fan coming out in you. But to your point about 
the guys saying that the people that had no reservations being able to gloat, I actually think that that's stupid because if you didn't have any reservations about a team whose biggest weakness a year ago was not addressed at all in the offseason, um, if you didn't have any concerns, then you're just not a smart fan. I'm sorry to say. Um, if you had, if you really thought that everybody's just going to be better, then okay, I can understand that if you can tell me why you thought these guys were going to be better. But if your if your reasoning was, nah, everybody's going to be fine. The Braves are still better than everybody else. We didn't need those guys. Um, then I'm going to call your I'm going to call your logic into question. And but. And there, there was reason to think, like, you look at Jesse Biddle. Jesse Biddle was really good last year. And Chad Sabatka, he showed some real promise last year. Um, you know, so there, there were a couple of guys that were out there where it's like, okay, man, if I squint just right, I, I, can see, I can see where you're coming from here. But the whole bullpen is a unit. You know, and Luke Jackson, Luke Jackson was not very good last year. And he's the one that, that for, a, for a very long time was like the dude out there. And and so th- there were a lot of different a lot of different reasons to to be apprehensive. And you know, some some t- the people that that love to just freak out and call the the season over after 3 games. I mean, that that's too much. But but being somewhat discontent with where where we were. No even even the most optimistic of fans and even the front office would tell you be like, "Man, I didn't think that we were going to be in this spot. I thought the team was going to be good, but I didn't think it was going to be 10 games up." Over over the Nationals and and talking about winning numbers and stuff and and being able to you know haven't lost a series in six weeks the, this deep into the season I mean this this is a a lot has fallen even for as much as fallen wrong there has been a lot that has that has fallen right for this team so at this point you know I'm I'm just ready to do like the hey Dylan we won the championship or we <laughs> we won the division uh, episode hopefully we'll get to do that next week. Yeah, we can go ahead and ring the bell. But we do need to talk about, as as was mentioned in passing a little bit ago, um, if you guys have been on Twitter at all today, then you've probably seen that Nick Markakis is set to come back probably during this national series coming up. Um, it's got us feeling a couple types of ways. Doc and I are, are very in very different places on our thoughts of Markakis. Doc does like Markakis, so he's probably a little bit more unbiased here. Um... But there's some things about that that concern me. And it's not that I think that Nick is a bad player, although he has been bad this year. Um, I don't I don't like the fact that he comes back and he's just guaranteed every day at bat batting in the five hole. I don't like it. He's been horrendous against lefties all year. Yet somehow he, he just gets, despite having like a 326 slugging percentage against lefties and batting like 239, he just gets every day he gets to step in and have every day at bats regardless of, of who they're against. And it's just this weird amount of deference that like, I don't know if this was just DOB framing it wrong, but, but saying that Snickers going to go to Marcakis and ask him if he wants to play right field some days when Joyce isn't playing, or if he just wants to play left field all the time, that just seems like such a weird deference thing to me. Truth is, man, and and I I, I get it. I it, it is it is kind of weird, but it, I mean, Nick Markakis is like the elder statesman on this team. You look at you look at guys like Donaldson. You know he he got his reputation by by having a track record. You know he his was much more spectacular than Markakis, but it's also much shorter. Markakis has been a solid performer, never spectacular. You know last year was his first 
his first All-Star game ever. And, and a lot of that was buoyed by what he did for the first six weeks. He has earned the right of first refusal on a lot of things. And I've talked about Freddie and Julio and how, like, the emotional connection that I have with them for, you know, their, their connection to a better time. Truthfully, Mark Hakus stepped in right as the rebuild started. And he sat through two years of shit to, sorry, to, to get to this, two years, four years, several years, however long it was, of just horrible losing teams, team with John Cornelly and Donnie Veal in the bullpen, you know, like Jace Peterson, the starting second baseman, he's been through a lot. He has, he has earned at least the, the right to be questioned on some of these things. He's almost like a player coach at this point, like Pete Rose, but by the end of his career. So, I mean, I get it. I think the fact that, you know, the, how he was hitting right after the All-Star break where he had a little bit of time to rest, it's almost like he's getting a, he got like a mini off-season, like he got a month where he didn't have to go out and tire himself out. The timing of this is actually probably really good for getting him for like, you don't need him for six months. You need him for one month to be good. Like once the, you know, once he comes back, or six weeks between when he comes back and when the season's going to be over. So... I think it could actually be more beneficial. It's once again, like we were just talking about, it's easy to be skeptical on this. It's entirely possible he comes back, he hits 171 for the entire time that he's back and snits over here going, "Oh my god, I deferred to him so much for this and he sucks." And but that's that's the thing. I don't I almost think his hands are tied at this point. It, but also, I think he does have a genuine respect for him. I think everybody in the clubhouse does have a genuine respect for him. So, um until he has a reason to move him down in the lineup now, I, I don't really think he's going to. So I don't know if it's just me having already come to terms with it or what, but Snit's going to Snit. I just I don't understand it. If you just look at him from this season, he's been worth 0.1 F4. Like, can we agree that that's below replacement level? Like, I don't understand. And if you look at his Braves tenure, it's really just last year that he was really worth anything. Like, and when when you get people that ask, oh, I don't understand why he's not beloved like he is in Baltimore, because he hasn't played like he did in Baltimore, you idiot. He was a young player in Baltimore, and he played really well there. He was a really good player at one point in his career. And I know he's from Woodstock, but we've talked about this before, how he gets this weird cult following. I don't understand how people can be looking for any small mistake that Acuna makes, like robbing a home run yesterday, but it falling out of his glove, or Tuesday, but it falling out of his glove, yet like sit there and, and scream and kick and cry anytime somebody suggests that Marquecas isn't an elite player. That, that, is, that is weird. And, and you know, as somebody who's <clears throat> really big into cult followings, um, that's one that I that you know I, I like him, but I, I can't I can't quite get behind all of that. He does get dinged for for the defensive metrics because he he does not have fantastic range or a fantastic arm or anything like that. And and even as far as the offensive metrics go, he he will give you a lot of he will get hits, but he's not necessarily giving you a lot of home runs. So so the F war um, that winds up getting dinged a little bit for the defense is not compensated for for like really big flashy offense. I mean he's. He's a plain player, and that's that's okay. You know, that's it's gonna have to be because that's just kind of who he is right now. And where I get kind of hung up with it is, you know, talked about Rafael Ortega getting meaningful time, 
because my dogs hate Rafael Ortega. Um, Adam Duvall can hit righties. Austin Riley kind of can't hit at all right this second. Long term, it will be different, but right this second, he's in a deep slump. That double that he hit off the wall last night, notwithstanding. Billy Hamilton is not a starter. You know, so you, you look at your best options for the outfield. Truthfully, Marquecas in left, Acuna in center, and Joyce in right. Or maybe you flip-flop Joyce and Marquecas. I mean, truthfully, that's kind of your best option right now. I mean, you can't... All anybody has to do is throw Austin Riley a slider, and you're looking at a, sli- at a strikeout. And Adam Duvall, <clears throat> I mean, who knows? Who knows? You send him back to Gwinnett, he's going to hit him to the moon. You bring him up to Atlanta, he's going to hit great for about 25 minutes, and that's kind of it. So... Going into the playoffs, the Marquecas, Acuna, Joyce outfield, I mean, we got to kind of get comfortable with that. Unless you trust Billy Hamilton. I, I certainly don't. No, but I, I think that we can say, we can be honest enough to say that he's a platoon player at this point. Whether that platoon is, now whether he's playing more because his platoon mates are not playing well is different than saying he just gets to return and get everyday at-bats in the five hole. Like That's not who he is at this point. Matt Joyce has been better against lefties than Nick Markakis. It's a smaller sample size, but it's only a smaller sample size because you haven't been giving him the at-bats. Adam Duvall has been a lot better against lefties than Marcakis. Uh, even Camargo, I want to see what Camargo can do now. Since he's come back up, he's been doing really well. I understand if you don't want to commit to playing him in the outfield all the time. I get that. But it should not just be written in stone that a guy comes back six weeks after getting his wrist broken, a guy that already didn't have a lot of power, already can't move more than two steps, and he just gets to basically step into the five hole where he was before and get every single every single at bat that he can. Dansby didn't come back to the two hole despite how well he was playing when he came back. The Braves are like, you know what? Ozzy's been killing it up there. Dansby, guess what? You get to move down in the order. I don't understand why Marcakis gets that type of deference when he was having the season he was having. I don't know. Honestly, that probably, I think that's a combo as far as like the Dansby situation. That's kind of weird because once Ozzy moved up to second, like having Acuna, Albies, Freeman, Donaldson at the top, I mean, that's, that's electric dynamite. You know, you can't mess with it. Even for as good as Dansby had been beforehand, you know, he had missed a month of time. And Dansby's a young guy. This comes back to the veteran thing. You know, we, we mock veteran presence all day long. But it is real. You know, and the heat, Marquez is going to get preferential treatment for the fact that he was, he's been around since 2007. You know, he's – it's it just kind of is what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm forcing myself into path of least resistance with it because, you know, the more we try and fight it, the more frustrating it gets in the moment where, you know, first game of the Washington series, then he's going to be in the lineup fifth. But you snit, a traditionalist, loves going left, right, left, right, left, right, and that's exactly what happens. So, you know, it prevents somebody from, you know, being able to bring in a loogie to face Freddie, and, well, and then they're going to have to face Donaldson. And, and then Marcakis or Joyce or whoever winds up batting fifth on the other side. I mean, it does complicate matters a little bit, but I think that the actual impact of that is probably overblown. But a lot of that has to do with our perception of that because the loogie is like a dying art. Relievers are getting better. They're stretching out more. The ones that are being used are, by and large, better than being able to just face one guy, notwithstanding somebody like Jerry Blevins. Um, or Darren O'Day, the roogie. Very, very rare, the roogie. But uh, but who knows? It, and he could come back, and he could be fine. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's not a guy like Giancarlo Stanton. When Giancarlo broke his hammock bone, it like his power 
kind of went away. But it's really noticeable because he he had been hitting like fifty or forty fifty home runs a year, and then it's like, well, why is he only hitting doubles now? Marquez is only going to give you like. 12 home runs a year in a good year, but he's going to give you a lot of doubles. So I still think it might not be as noticeable the fact that he had a broken wrist. So still a good guy to get on there, even for as many home runs as the, as the top of this lineup has seen. You know, between Acuna, Albies, Freeman, and Donaldson, I think you're looking at uh, quick math off the top of my head like uh, 125 between those four guys. Not necessarily in those top four slots, but there's a lot of extra base hits in there too. You're going to have fast guys on base especially in the case of Acuna and Albies. And you don't necessarily need a home run for those guys. You just need somebody who can who can get a hit. And Marquez is really good at putting the ball in play. So he is a traditional manager's dream. As long as it's a right as long as it's a right hander on the mound. Sure. And but once again, that comes back to if it's a if it's a lefty, do which Austin Riley do you trust? Which Adam Duvall do you trust? You know you don't trust Ortega, but when you start getting into actual viable options to replace him, can you really trust those other options? At least Marquecas has the track record. I mean, maybe, and I, I'm really not saying this just to to be mean and hateful because, like, it is better to have Nick Marquecas getting at bats than Rafael Ortega. I just my my problem is always that he just all of a sudden gets to be counted on like he's he's a key cog on this team and he's just not like that's not hateful to say that he's just not a key cog on the team the Braves were obviously fine without him I I I I, got to move on from this topic because there's going to be a lot of people that are either really angry with me or I'm going to make myself really angry so I'm going to move away from this target I'm going to move to something a little bit happier and let's move on to this bullpen that we hated on them early enough in the season and with good reason yet they've really figured things out now and with the aside from Luke Jackson who has not been good lately um, and aside from Sean Newcomb who hasn't been good over the last month this bullpen has been really really strong did you watch the immaculate inning I sure did with Chris Martin mm-hmm. and I love I love me some Chris Martin I've mentioned this before I don't know if I mentioned it on the show I've mentioned it to you though in passing he's basically he's basically Chad Sabatka if Sabatka didn't walk people yeah yeah that's that's a great comp I mean he, he's uh, his use I think that they were leaning on him really hard for the first month once he came over you know he he had a long time where, where he wasn't pitching he was working at like a Lowe's warehouse or a UPS warehouse or something like that. I mean, he he got drafted, so he had some background as a pitcher there, but he, he had taken a lot of time off, and like once he moved from from Texas over here, they were really leaning on him hard, and then towards the end of August, they kind of backed up on him a little bit. And now, I think that last night, the Immaculate Inning night, was the second time he's been used in all of September. And he came out, and he was just firing bullets. You know, he looked fantastic. So I think that uh, having the expanded roster, it's probably going to benefit Martin as much as it's going to benefit anybody because it gives him the chance to kind of monitor his workload a little bit. Because you want, you want these guys to be fresh for the playoffs. And people, people have been mad about the fact that, that Sabatka got some time in September and that Minter has, has got some time. But I honestly, it doesn't bother me too much because, you know, they talk about riding the hot hand. You never know if Sabatka is going to be in one of his phases where he's throwing a bunch of strikes instead of walking a bunch of people. You never know if Minter is going to be at the point where, even if they moved him to the the sixty day DL, 
just prior to when we started recording this, you never know when he's going to kind of rediscover something and be an actual legit weapon for the playoffs. And for as much as Newcomb has struggled, then you're looking at guys like A.J. Mentor. You're looking at guys like uh, Grant Dayton, who who replaced Mentor to be like an actual left-handed option in the bullpen come the playoffs. So I get it from the perspective of, of not just holding like an open audition, but for guys like Martin trying to trying to keep them fresh, not overload them. There's been some talk that Patrick Weigel, I think um, Bowman was talking about how Patrick Weigel's going to come up. Still haven't seen him, but you know he's another guy that he's probably not going to make the postseason roster, but he can if he can get in there, take an inning that would have been Martin's and keep it moderately clean and keep from completely imploding, then that still serves a really big purpose. And Shane Green, Mark Melanson, we talked about we talked about the batting average on balls in play. We talked about like once this starts to normalize, you're going to see that these guys are much better than the, than their ERAs. And M- Melanson at one point had an ERA over 10 and his FIP was under 1, and that's starting to come back to earth a little bit. Same thing with Green, he's had scoreless appearances in 14 out of his last 15. Just amazing trade deadline acquisitions really just changed the whole face of this team and there's a bunch of irony about the fact that Newcomb was the one that that freaked out kicked the trash can that uh, ignited the fire extinguisher and everybody has been great except for him he has sucked over the last month he's starting to give up a few more home runs again and that's just kind of what's going to happen with him I think he'll iron it out and I think for the Braves to go far in the playoffs he has to play a big role because there's not many other lefties that I really trust I'm a big fan of Grant Dayton I think if he's used correctly he can do very well um, but essentially this this the end of this month after the Braves clinch let's say but at, as soon as the Braves clinch it needs to be finding out who can be the fringe players on your on your postseason roster right away. I think they need to find out who's got a real chance to help you. You know the starters are going to be fine. Giving them some extra rest is not necessarily a bad thing. I'd start taking them out in like the fourth and fifth innings just to keep them fresh a little bit. And then get in your guys that you want to see if they've got a real shot at your playoff roster. I think you could start seeing uh, the reemergence of like a Bryce Wilson, Waskar Noah, those type guys to just absorb some innings. Just... Get them, get them fresh. You've seen how good these guys can be when they're fresh. We're pretty lucky with the fact that Keuchel has two less months than everybody else in the rotation. Then, uh, and and Fulty had, excuse me, he because of the way that his season started, and then the fact that he went down to Gwinnett, he was still pitching those innings, but you know they're not quite as meaningful of innings. So, the rotation, I think that's part of why the rotation has been so good, and the the bullpen has had a, a little bit of a different situation in there this this team is really primed to do something special and it's the first time like last year you knew who was going to be on the bench you knew who was going to be in the bullpen and now it's a little bit more open and if you have to wind up leaving good players off of your roster when you go into the playoffs that's probably a good thing you know it means it means you have too many options it means that if something goes sideways then by the time the nlcs rolls around knock on wood hopefully that's going to wind up happening then then you can change course on something. Or like if the fact that Camargo, that ball that he fouled off his shin, which looked super painful, if he has to miss the NLDS because of that, he could come back for the NLCS if he needs just a little bit more time to recover or somebody like Ender. So good things, man, really good things. When we did that Periscope Live, we had the question about who's going who's gonna to be on the bench for the playoffs, and we had no idea because there were so many options. 
Absolutely. I mean, we still don't really have any idea, uh, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're going to take our first break. When we come back, I'm going to explain why one of us thinks the Braves and the Dodgers is not as clear-cut as most national pundits would have you believe. Also, a Max Fried stat that I know is going to make my partner all tingly. All that and more coming up next right here on the Platinum Sombrero. This week's episode of the Platinum Sombrero podcast is brought to you by Amsterdam, presented by the Worldwide Tourism Federation. Have you already booked your trip to Holland? Well, if so, be sure to download Amsterdam, the hot new globetrotting companion app that's got everybody buzzing. Whether you're planning on getting cross-eyed in Kulemborg or wrecked in Utrecht, with Amsterdam, you can plan and track an entire slate of activities for those Rotterdam days and Harlem nights. Because your trip to the Netherlands should be impossible to forget. And even harder to remember. Don't let your memories go up in smoke. Download Amsterdam today. Presented in conjunction with Dank of America and the Contravan, delivering chronic debauchery since 2001. Patent pending. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I am Doc Herbert, and with me is still Dylan Short. This is the second half of episode 80 of the Platinum Sparrow podcast. Uh, before we get rolling into the baseball talk, just want to take a quick second to talk to you about Blue Chew. Getting older is hard, man. Your body starts breaking down in all sorts of weird ways. You wake up tired. You wake up sore from doing nothing at all. You can hear your knees crackling when you walk upstairs. And to make things worse, it can be a little more difficult to be ready for sexy time when your lady's ready to go. So for moments like these, the last one at least, you gotta try Blue Chew. It's a tiny blue pill that saves you from the mental anguish of underperformance. The ingredients are legit, they're FDA approved, so your heart's not gonna explode if you wind up getting too excited. You can rest assured it's an easy and safe way to go from being a, a human to being a superhuman in the bedroom. And it works twice as fast as a pill just because you chew it. Something about the speed of digestion, I don't know, I'm not really a scientist. They'll send it right to your door with under-the-radar packaging so it can be your little secret. And if you go to bluechew.com, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, use our promo code armchair. You'll get your first order for free aside from the cost of shipping, and even that's just 5 bucks. If you talk to your lady about it, she'd probably be willing to pay that 5 bucks for you. So, blue can be your lady's favorite color. Get down to business. You, too, can make her say woo. That's Blue Chew. All right. Dylan Short. So, we talked a lot in the first half about the fact that the Braves are about to lock up the NL East, which I think that we all would agree was pretty optimistic to assume the way that things looked after the first week of the season. It's entirely possible it could wind up happening against an NL East rival, which makes it especially, especially sweet. And one of the reasons why is because this team really separated itself in the second half with a lot of really good starting pitching. Um... Max Fried has been really leading the charge, even with the start that he had the other night against Philadelphia, where he just got clobbered in the first inning. He still has just been a revelation. But in the end of the first half, you teased that you have a stat that is going to make me, I believe, use the word tingly. So by all means, tell me what this stat is. Okay, well, first off, to to douse you with cold water before we jump into the tingly thing, um, I'm not worried about Max versus Philly. He just sucks against Philadelphia. Just 
he so everybody has that one team they can't pitch to. For Max, that's Philly. He's had five outings against him this year, three starts, a 5.07 ERA, and an 8.7 FIP, which is very, very unmax free, like in a game score of 26. So they tend to get to him pretty well for whatever reason. He does not handle Harper and Real Muto very well. They tend to bomb off of him. But ignoring that start for the anomaly that it is, Max Freed's last start against Washington. Did you see his game score? It was like 85? 89. 89. Dear God. Which, for, for those of our listeners who don't know what a game score is, explain to them like the, the numbers that tell you a, that describe what a game score is. So they can know what a good versus a great versus an amazing is. Okay, so with game score, every pitcher starts at 40, and for every out that gets recorded, they get one point. And if they get an out via strikeout, then they get two points. And for um, every inning that they wind up going, they wind up accumulating to their score as they get outs and strikeouts. Um, and and so if you have a lot of strikeouts, and it's obviously going to help spike your game score, you get points taken away for giving up hits, for giving up runs, and stuff like that. So honestly, anything above 60, because you're going to wind up kind of treading water for some of these, you know, if you have a, an inning where you give up two hits, then that's going to offset whatever points you get for recording outs or strikeouts. So if you get something along the lines of like a 60 or a 65, then you're sitting pretty. That's a, that's a pretty decent outing. So the fact that he got an 89 is... That's real good. When uh, when Justin Verlander threw his no hitter, his per, his uh, game score was like a hundred and two, right? Yeah, yeah. Which nobody nobody in Braves history has ever gotten one that high, I believe. Um, but I went back, so I want to look on this. That eighty nine, that is an elite level game score. Like eighty is considered elite. So you get to eighty nine. That's that's very rarefied air. I went all the way back to two thousand nine. So ten years. There are only three other pitchers who have ever recorded a game score higher than Max Fried's 89. Could you guess them? I'd be willing to bet that one of them was Fulty last year against Washington. Nope. Really? 85. Really? Then no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know who it would be. The last one was last July, like July 29th, and that was Sean Newcomb, that game yeah. against the Dodgers where he went yeah. eight and two-thirds. Uh, he had a 91. Before that was Chris Medlin in, I want to say, 2011, maybe 2010. He recorded a 91 as well. And the owner from the last 10 years who has the highest game score ever recorded, Tim Hudson. When Who did he... Who did he do that against? I can't remember who he did it against. It w- it was a good opponent. It wasn't some overmatched garbage opponent. He recorded a 94 game score. And that was in like 2009. That's dealing. That's insane. So that that really does put into perspective how special how special that outing was too because the fact that he only he didn't walk anybody and he only allowed one hit and had 11 strikeouts. I mean, that's Best start of his career. I mean, certainly by game score, but as far as optics too, because his stuff was working. Like you, you'd never know. You'd never know that it was the same pitcher between, um, between the the Washington Max and Philly Max. Oh, and truthfully, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nine strikeouts, not eleven. Still though, that's still very good. But he, even outside of that first inning where it's uh, he might have been tipping his pitches or something like that, then after the first inning. Everything wound up being fine. The uh, the Kingery inside the park home run, which is 
well, you know, Acuna had to rob it of being an actual home run, and then it <clears throat> wound up being a makeshift home run. Um, that one you can pin on him. But af- after that, I mean, his stuff looked good. He, outside of, uh, you know, the home run that he gave up to Real Muto off the off the foul pole, you know, you could make the case that that one is like, if you're in a different park where it's a little bit farther back, then maybe it hooks slightly foul. The Dickerson home run was a, a Citizens Bank Park special. The Harper one was absolutely demolished. So, you know, that one that one was legit. But outside of those, you know, that was not a not a horrible outing. So he's definitely turned the corner, man. He's come playoffs, you know. We we were so worried about, oh man, he he's getting up towards his, his career high in innings. What's gonna happen? He's that's been like thirty forty of the best innings of his entire career ever since he blew past his innings limit. So you know, next year all restrictions will be off. I think that they can they can kind of breathe easier. Similar with Soroka, even though he's uh, backing up just a little bit. He's given up more home runs in the last two weeks than than you like to see. Yeah, and with Freed, it's come about in a very different way as he's kind of learning who he is as a pitcher. If I were to ask you, Doc, what is Max Freed's worst pitch? What would you say? My first inclination is to say the slider, but just because it's the newest one, but he's actually done really well at, at implementing it. His worst pitch by by a hard hit percentage, by average against, by barrels, is his fastball, believe it or not. Really? Yes. That's huh. the pitch he throws that gets hard, hit hardest. It doesn't have a super high spin rate, despite the fact that he can run it up to 98. Uh, so instead, what he's been doing, and remember, he had he had about that, that four or five start stretch in the second half, in the early in the second half, where he wasn't performing really, really well, where he was kind of, you know, giving up four runs each outing. Well, since he's he's been on this month-long kick where he's been one of the best pitchers in the National League, uh, last night notwithstanding, it's because he's cut down on his fastball and he started implementing his slider a lot more. He's throwing his slider at about 13 to 14% clip right now. And if you look at his stat cast page, his slider, which he just started throwing this year, is already a, a top percentage-wise. I think it's in the top 10% as far as horizontal movement for a slider. For a pitch that he, that he just started throwing. Yeah, that's really impressive. That's really, really impressive. I mean, and you you pair it. Apparently, um, he's really consistent with the arm angle on that, too. Like, it comes out in the exact same way that the fastball does. So the deception is, like, naturally just in there. All of his pitches he throws from the same arm slot. And the slider has worked so well because it's almost exactly in the middle speed-wise between his fastball and his curveball. And that's what was getting him touched up a little bit through his bad stretches was hitters were able to sit back and guess. If it's not coming in fast, it's that curveball. Uh, if, if it's coming out slow, you know it's – or if it's coming in fast, you know it's just a fastball. Now he's got a pitch that's in between those two speeds, and it's making hitters have to adjust to the pitch and not trying to look for velocity instead of an actual pitch location. So as long as this is working for Max, and this is one of those things that if you just listen to Chip and Jeff talk, and I love Jeff Rancor, folks, don't, don't get me wrong, um, but their very big ardence of Max needs to throw his fastball as much as possible. It's the same way that people will talk about this with you, Darvish. And they're very similar in that their fastball is not their best pitch, despite the fact that they can throw it very hard. Max's best pitch is breaking ball. So it's very rare to see that where a guy's fastball is the pitch that gets hit the hardest. And it makes for a hard game to call for a lot of people because you get to traditional counts like 2-0, 3-1, and you just think, all right, throw the fastball. 
Well, that's actually the worst pitch for him to locate. Like, it's the hardest one for him to consistently locate, so it doesn't work out as well. That's why over this past month, Max has really, really stepped up, and in my opinion, He's been probably the second best pitcher on the staff. Over the past 30 days, Keiko's got an ERA under one, so it's probably Keiko if you want to name a best pitcher. But Max has been the most impactful starter because he's starting to learn what he does that keeps hitters off balance. Not just, hey, I can throw 98, but he's starting to learn what he can do to make himself even better. The ability to, you know, the people talk about, you know, throwing versus pitching all the time. It's a very common and easy talking point. But the truth is, the reason why it's so common is because it is a really good point, and that's what makes somebody like Soroka really, really special. It's like Mike Soroka was born knowing how to pitch and knowing how to sequence and locate and everything. And Freed has a lot flashier stuff than Soroka does, but I think that he kind of lags behind a little bit and as far as as far as the actual pitching side of it but you're starting to see him get it you're starting to you know in in these outings like w- what we saw against the twins and the white Sox, and and uh especially against the nationals i mean this this is somebody this is like a budding superstar he's obviously still got some some steps to take there but in the way no this is kind of extreme so take this with a grain of salt but the way that we talk about maddox glavin and smoltz and we talk about like the good old days now those are hall of famers so these are very lofty comps and i don't mean them one for one but freed and soroka have a chance to be like a legit legit solid pitching not just throwing combo for a very very long time like when when i've got kids and you've got kids we will tell them about you know the early days of of max freed and mike soroka and everything and it's like we're seeing it unfold now, like as the season goes on, outing after outing, and, and and especially in this outing against Philadelphia, being able to recover and and have your ass handed to you, like that's important. That's really really important to to re- be able to recover from that. When you realize very early on, I don't have my A game. I got to figure out how to work out here, and knowing that you're not just having to avoid getting into a hole, but having to dig yourself out of a hole that you're already in. And like I said, outside of Outside of that first inning, he was solid. So, still got a ways to go, but he's he's really really taken a huge step forward. And it's been great to see, not just because you and I like him, but because Freed has always been such an interesting case as far as like what he can actually be. Because we've always we've always known from the time he got drafted that he's always had an elite curveball and that he's got elite he's got elite stuff like pure arm stuff. But I don't know if anybody ever thought that he would be able to control the way he has. That's why he's he's been, over the past couple of years, he's been kind of ranked below a lot of the other premier arms on the Braves by guys like Fangraphs, who now finally have him up at a 50. But this type of Max Reed, I've said this before, I think he has a chance to be, I think he's probably the highest upside arm that the Braves have at this point. Um, maybe Ian Anderson, you can say. Um, there, there might be another may, maybe, maybe Kyle Muller, but I really think Max Fried is the highest upside. I think Soroka is obviously the best right now, and I think he's he's the highest floor, but I think Max has the highest ceiling of any of these guys. So to see him take that step, it's big for the Braves, and it, it gives them, if he can continue this, it gives them an easy playoff rotation decision. I mean, just bringing, just thinking about it. Would there be any other way for you now? If it's if it's me, I know a lot of people are saying throw Keiko game one because he's been there before and done all that. Um, I think I still go Soroka Keiko Freed. I am, 
I go back. Or and I, I guess. By the way, I guess if you want to go left, right, left, you'd go Keiko Soroka freed. I guess. Yeah, and that that kind of that's one thing I'm that I'm thinking about here because Keiko has been there before, and you know you you definitely want to start the series on the right foot. And I mean the way that he's been pitching recently, it's not even like oh he's got the freshest arm, he's the best option to throw out there, which there's a case to be made for that. But I mean he's looked worth every bit of money ever since that that implosion against Miami he has been absolutely lights out amazing at just the right time too and uh, it was nice to see him throw a little bit of shade at the Phillies for having not signed him in the offseason I love to see it Um, but I I kind of go back and forth because you don't want to burn your bullpen out too much early in a series because you know you're going to have to lean on them the things are just different in the playoffs you're going to be asking a lot of guys when it when it comes really down to crunch time you want to pull somebody before they they start going through the third time through the order you know whether it's advised or not like if you start to see tendencies of something it's going to be a quick hook for somebody so that's where having somebody like a faulty who i think would probably wind up being the long man in the playoffs would really come in handy but do you throw Keuchel out there knowing that he's probably going to give you seven innings and you rest the bullpen for for game one or do you just kind of you put Freed or Soroka out there for game one game two and then have Keuchel as your three knowing that he might actually help save the bullpen a little bit in case you have to lean on them too much in games games one or two even if you just give somebody like one extra day to recover for something because it's the end of the season. Guys are getting tired, and you're not going to have expanded September rosters. You can't just go giving innings to Chad Sabatka so you can so you can rest Chris Martin or whatever. This there's a lot at stake. So I still am kind of undecided. But when it comes down to the fourth, because I think they're going to roll with four starters, do you go to Ron or do you go with Fulty? I think it depends on the matchup. Uh, if you're talking about facing the Cardinals, I think I would probably prefer to roll with Julio than Fulty. And I know that seems weird. Um, I think it's more just because Julio's been extremely consistent this year. And the Cardinals on the whole, I don't think that they'll deal with off-speed as well as they'll deal with high velocity. Uh, and they've got some guys that I don't want to be throwing a lot of fastballs to. Guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Paul De- or, and Paul DeYoung. Um, and Marcelo Zuna. A lot of guys I'd rather be throwing off-speed if at all possible. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like last year, the Braves did not use Julio Tehran as a starter against the Dodgers, I believe. Uh, they used him out of the bullpen, if I'm correct. That's right. And that was because you didn't want him facing the Dodgers. Um, I think Fulty, if he's really fully all the way back, Fulty has a chance to be better. Julio's just been your most consistent pitcher this year, start to start. So I think, and I think Fulty, if Julio were to have a bad start to an outing, you'd be able to pull the hook on him a whole lot quicker and go to Fulty. Um, if you're talking about facing the Dodgers, I'm going to pick Fulty because his stuff, his pure stuff is better, and I need somebody who's going to keep the ball in the yard if I'm talking about the Dodgers. But if I'm talking about the Dodgers, I might try to just roll with just three and be like, Dallas and, and, and Mike, you're going twice. And, and there's something to be said for that, too. I, I think... I think I might go with Julio in the fourth spot just because I think that Fulty could be such a weapon as a reliever because outside of Martin, these guys are not flamethrowers out there. And and Fulty, 
Oh man, good Mike Fultonavich is one of my like. I think I might enjoy watching good Fulty more than I enjoy watching any of our pitchers. I love Max and and, and Sorokin and and all these guys, but Fulty is my guy. And as much as it pains me to say it, I think that it would work better. You know, Keuchel. I mean, I saw Keuchel hit 90 yesterday, and I'm like, ooh, he's he's really turning it on right now. You know, Max can dial it up to 98. Soroka's got some velo in there, but when you're looking at Keuchel and Julio, having the ability to bring in somebody like Fulty to go multiple innings, say Julio goes four, and then Fulty comes in and goes three innings, you're looking at like a, a maximum velocity upgrade of like six or seven miles per hour, and that that's huge. You know what I mean? That's There's really something to be said about like having to – to face somebody, you know, instead of going through an order the second time, it's like, okay, well, now it's the the fifth or sixth inning. I'm, I'm getting my third at bat, and this guy's throwing a whole lot faster than the last guy that I saw. And that's not not to say that it's, you know, guys aren't dealing with that with the the era of high velocity pitchers now. But for Fulty, the way that he's looked, I think he'd be a really good asset out there. And, and Julio, he's figured out how to pitch with with his current stuff. He. He seems much more natural this year than he did last year. He didn't know how, how to pitch at 89-90 last year, and, th- and this year he really does seem to. So, But the Dodgers, they scare me a little bit. I know they don't particularly scare you, but a lot has to fall right for the Braves to wind up seeing the Dodgers in the NLCS. I'm At this point, I'm looking at the Cardinals and saying, I really think... If it's going to wind up being like that, as long as Milwaukee, who doesn't have Kristen Yelich anymore, if they're not going to wind up being able to jump back into the division lead, Braves-Cardinals series, I, the Braves can win that. Absolutely, and I, I fully expect the Braves to beat either of the of the NL Central teams they play. If it's the Cubs or if it's the Cardinals, the Braves are better than both of those teams, and they're better top to bottom. I mean, the Cardinals have a good lineup. They have horrible pitching. Um, Jack Flaherty can be really good, but he also struggles to get out of the fifth inning. Miles um, Michaelis has not been that good this year, and he's not the type of pitcher that I think will give the Braves too too much trouble. I think in a in a five or five game series, the Braves would dominate the Cardinals. I feel the same way about the Cubs. Um, John Lester, for whatever reason, keeps beating up on the Braves, but that's about the only pitcher that they have that really worries you. Um, their lineup is very, very top-heavy. They've got some really powerful guys, very good people, like Javier Baez, um, and Anthony Rizzo, and Chris Bryant. But outside of those three, I, I'll take my chances on any of those other ones. When you start talking about the Dodgers, that's where things get tricky. And in a second, I guess I'll, I'll talk about the reason why I think this, why they don't worry me as much as they did earlier this year, uh, and why I think the Braves have an actual shot at beating them. But just to talk more on the Cardinals, I kind of want it to be the Cardinals, just because I want to beat them in the playoffs so badly. If you're asking for the one thing that would lead me to make me nervous about the Cardinals. It's the fact that it is the freaking Cardinals and they have just tortured and ruined the Braves postseason hopes for what seems like more than anybody else ever in baseball. So I would love to get one back and just crush them. It's been a long time since the Braves really, really had a shot to, to go deep in the playoffs. I mean, you look at the past couple times you get, it was Dodgers last year. Dodgers 2013 and the year before that was the outfield fly rule game which um you know no matter what like I feel bad even even bringing it up like no matter what it's always going to be too soon and uh, 
2011, you know, they, they wound up uh, eliminating the Braves during that massive September collapse. I mean, they, they've got this weird black magic surrounding them that, that just is, it's annoying. It's really, really annoying. And national pundits have really attached themselves to the Cardinals recently because, because they're, they're winning. They're just winning all these different games. And the funny thing is, it's similar to what happened with the Mets before. You look at who they have played, every, all of the winning that they have done has been against subpar teams. They, they, got, they lost five in a row to Oakland and to the Dodgers. They lost to the Brewers in two different series, and then they beat up on the Pirates, they beat up on the Giants, they beat up on the Reds, they beat up on the Royals, they uh, see they beat up on the Pirates again, the Rockies. I mean, every time that they wind up facing like a really good team, they wind up kind of folding a little bit. So I want to see them see the Braves play the Cardinals for different reasons. Um, but just because I think that it, it would be it would be much easier, and this is not to say that they're not a fantastically talented team, and the Cardinals are actually my preseason choice to win the division. But I I still I think that the, where the Braves are right now, I think that yeah, you're right about the rotation. Jack Flaherty, that dude is scary. That dude is really really good. Beyond that, I'm not super impressed. And with their bullpen, you know Jordan Hicks is out, and when John Gant is is your third best reliever, I mean that that doesn't particularly scare me. Despite the fact that John Gant is somehow throwing 99. Yeah, what happened there? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's the Charlie Morton thing. Like, Brian McCann swears that Charlie Morton was the most talented pitcher, like, stuff-wise, the first time when he was with Atlanta. Charlie Morton wasn't throwing 98 when he was a Brave. He reinvented himself somehow. He made a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. And he wasn't even that special when once he went to Pittsburgh, right? No, he was actually horrible in Pittsburgh. And he had like one half decent year and the Astros were like, all right, we'll sign him for cheap. We'll use him as a long man. And then boom. Must be nice. And then Tampa's yeah, like, oh, hey, here's, the, here's $30 million. <laughs> Which I would have I given him. I would have given him more than that. I wanted Charlie Morton on this team so badly. But that, that's going far afield. Um, getting back to this playoff hunt, there's a reason why I think that the Braves, and we could probably talk about the Cubs. I don't care. Um, let's just move on <laughs> to the important thing, the thing that I want to talk about before the show's over. And that is I really do think now while the Dodgers are frightening a little bit uh, because they are – in my opinion, the second most talented team in baseball, definitely the most talented team top to bottom in the National League. Um, I, I do think that there's one area where the Braves have a large, large advantage, and I think that it can play a big-time role in the series, and, and not with everything having to bump our way. Like, the Braves having to have a career series and the Dodgers having a career worst outing from all their guys. I don't think it takes that. The Braves showed you in August that they can beat the Dodgers. Now, you can say uh, it's an August series. It's not the be-all, end-all. But it does show this team who hadn't won a series against them since, like, 2015 that you can beat that team, and you can do it without your best player, and you can do it with Freddie Freeman going 0 for 12. The big key that sets these two teams apart, the Dodgers and the Braves are basically 1 and 2 in every offensive category. Uh, the Dodgers pitching is rated better. Their bullpen is rated better over the course of the season. Um, they're, they're, they're just really freaking good. Like that, That's about all you can say. They're just a great team. But there is one stat, and it's, it's, I don't know how many of you guys know this one or not. Uh, it's called error runs. 
And if you don't know what that is, it's a Fangraphs one. Uh, if you guys are unfamiliar with the Fangraphs terms, I highly, highly recommend that you go through their their glossary that tells you what their stats are. At the very least, even if you're a traditionalist, at the very least, so you can understand what people are talking about when, when you're debating back and forth, it's always good to understand the other person's point of view, even if you don't share it. Um, but error runs, essentially, it grades a player's likelihood to make an error, how many errors they make compared to a league average fielder at their position. And the Braves as a whole are number three in Major League Baseball behind the Athletics and the Royals and number one in the entire National League as far as error runs. You remember early in the season when everybody keeps saying that the Braves have the best infield defense in Major League Baseball? Well, that was never the case. Uh, Range-wise, they, they just aren't. Donaldson makes some really good splashy plays, but he does not rate it very highly as far as UZR and things like that. Uh, Dansby's range is down from what it was a year ago. Ozzy's about the only one whose range seems to have stayed the same or improved. But this team does not make errors. And that type of discipline, which you can put on the shoulders of Ron Washington and the Braves, the young guys on the Braves, just fervor to work every single day at the small things. This type of, of game where they, they make all the routine plays. There's a lot more routine plays that happen in a game than spectacular ones. And when you can do that, that's what makes guys like Keuchel and Soroka and even Max Fried and Julio Tehran, that's what makes them the most effective. When you're making the plays behind them, the, those three at the top especially, uh, Keuchel, Soroka, Fried, they don't give up a lot of hard contact. I think those three are, are, are three of the tops in all of Major League Baseball in barrel percentage. I think Fried is actually one of the absolute best in Major League Baseball as far as barrel percentage. Um, but when you've got guys behind you that make the routine plays, that gives you an X factor that the Dodgers don't share. The Dodgers are 14th in the National League, 27th in Major League Baseball. They will give runners away. And that's the one thing that if you're beating, if you're going to beat the Dodgers, you can't give them extra runs. If you're able to keep them in the yard, the fact that this Braves team will make the routine plays, the easy plays, those easy double plays, uh, balls hit right at them, the fact that you can count on that day in and day out, play in and play out, that is a huge X factor in a matchup where the two offenses are number one and two. The Braves don't need a lot of breaks to put up a lot of runs. Neither do the Dodgers. The Dodgers, though, are a whole lot more apt to give you those breaks on defense than the Braves are. Braves have been really good, too, about taking advantage of opportunities that have been presented to them. And and that's that's huge. That's absolutely a great point that spectacular plays they're great to watch but part of the reason why they're so great to watch is because they're very rare ground outs to shortstop are very boring and they should stay very boring and Dansby you know last year when his bat was lagging really far behind his defense w- was really really special and he's, he's made some really good plays this year but you know every time that, that you see a grounder to him anymore you just expect that's just it's just gonna happen, which is why it was so glaring when Camargo was filling in for him, and he and he was bobbling, and he was making errant throws and everything. Ozzy, over at second, has been just unbelievable this entire year. Four errors all year for a second baseman. It's uh, or for a yeah, four errors all year for a second baseman is really really special. And Freddie being just like he's like Gumby over there, you know, he's he can see he can save a lot, and you know the infield defense is not elite as far as range, but as far as being absolutely solid, that's huge. So, you know, that is that is really something to keep an eye on. You also, you look at the fact that 
uh, a shout out to Brandon Kendetti. That's at Mr. Kendetti on Twitter. He pointed this out to me earlier today. Uh, the Braves have the most wins in baseball against teams with records above 500. They are 49 and 36. Uh, the NL East, who we use the term dogfight approximately 230,000 times uh, with these four teams. It's the only division of baseball with four teams over 500. Even as much as we like to laugh at the Phillies and Mets, they still are over 500. And the Braves have played them a lot. So they have played more games against teams above 500 than anybody. They have proven their ability to beat them. Uh, they have not really um, stacked their record up by just beating up on really bad teams. You know, the, the Dodgers... They get to play against the Rockies, and they get to play against the Padres, and you know they're 52 and 23 against teams that are under 500. So that's where you know their winning percentage is very high, but there's more than meets the eye with that. Braves are fantastic on the road; they're the best team in the National League on the road. Dodgers are second best, but the Braves are better than they are. And even when you look at the you know we were making fun of the Nationals at the very beginning of the show for the for the May 24th date. Even for as much as we like to bang on them about that, I mean, there there is kind of something to that. And the Braves are a different team. They've been in a constant state of evolution this entire this entire season and who they are now. And they've been, oh, what is it, like 72 and 35 over their past, you know, two-thirds of the season. Like, that's unbelievable. You're tracking at like 107, 108 wins over the course of the season, course of a season. This is a really good team, man. And that August series, yeah, we didn't see we didn't see Clayton Kershaw. We didn't see Walker Bueller, but they didn't see Dansby Swanson. They didn't really see Freddie Freeman. Rafael Ortega wound up stepping up. I mean, there that series was was kind of an anomaly, but but the Braves still won it. They found a way. That's the recurring theme. And whether it's through error runs or road record or wins against teams with records over 500 I mean there are a lot of things that are pointing to the fact that if the Braves and the Dodgers are in the NLCS it's not just a slam dunk it wouldn't surprise me if the Dodgers won but it wouldn't surprise me if the Braves won either and like I don't know man I you pointed out that it's the Atlanta fan in me and I'm kind of guarded and 28 three and you know the 1986 NBA uh, finals or Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics. You know, I was four years old, so I obviously remember that. You know, their 1991 World Series, like, there's a lot of reasons to be super apprehensive, but maybe the Atlanta, Atlanta United really did break the curse. Maybe this is the year. <laughs> I mean, I I feel really, really good about our chances making to the World Series. As far as winning the World Series, hey, anything can happen, but that Astros team is tough, man. <laughs> you're, well, yeah, talking about, yeah. you're talking about Cole, Verlander, and Granke. Like that's all you have to face. Like you don't get to face the other guys. So um, that's that's a little bit different. But the Braves have this innate ability to win on the road this year and to beat teams over 500. That's another reason why I feel great about them going into the playoffs. Another reason why I feel great. We'll have to push on until next week, though, as we are out of time for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for joining in. Sorry to leave you with that little teaser. Hopefully by this time next week, we're talking about a team on the cusp of playoff glory, a team that's already clinched its division and made the rest of the National League East cry in their tears. Thank you guys so much. Doc, thank you for joining me, sir. Always a pleasure, man. I can't believe we made it to number 80. I know. That's right. That's crazy. And it's really all thanks to you guys. Thanks so much for listening all the time. We really, really do appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We will be back next week right here on the Platinum Sombrero. Platinum Sombrero.